while we might abandon the Lord, he will never forsake us. And because of that, we can go to him now in prayer. Would you join me? Father God, you are the eternal rock of our salvation. You are steadfast, reliable, and unchanging. You have never found yourself in trouble. You have never been backed into a corner and you have never been surprised. You are unmovable and you never tire from your work. Father, you are steady and sure. And Lord, we can trust you because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we confess that we are too quick to forget you. We are too quick to live our lives believing that you are untrustworthy, and so we cling to things that are not you. This world offers many paths to salvation. It offers many hopes. Lord, relationships, possessions, our idea of what a perfect life looks like, they all promise to fulfill our greatest need. Forgive us, Father, for not trusting in you. Forgive us for not relying on you. Forgive us for deserting you, our steadfast anchor in times of need. Lord, we know that we deserve your judgment for not trusting in you as we ought. And Lord, we ask that you are gracious with us. Do not judge us as your enemies, but as your children. May we rest in your grace that you have, Lord, for your family. And we thank you that you are a merciful God, for you do not judge us as we deserve, but for those of us who are in Christ, our judgment is in forgiveness. And it was put on him. Lord, we thank you also that we are not in this world alone. Lord, we thank you for bringing and putting us with other like-minded churches to partner with. And this morning, we thank you for uh, the Branch Church in Corvallis and for Pastor Doug Payne. Lord, we thank you for their gospel witness there in Corvallis. And we pray that you, you would continue to equip that church to be a bright light that preaches your word and makes disciples. Lord, give the elders their wisdom as they lead the church through these trying days. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. As we are in the middle of summer with busy travel schedules, family get-togethers, and normal life that is hectic, may we not forget you, our Lord and our salvation. We pray that we would be a church marked by a peculiar love for others, that we would cling to you, our immovable hope. Finally, we pray for the word. Lord, be with Hans as he brings your word to us and may it land on our hearts and bring fruit, Lord, in the days to come. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And turn to Psalm 18 today. We're only going to be going through the one psalm today. It's a long one, so we need all the time to get through it. that you can now look back on and you can see more clearly. What event did you have personally where you wish you could have seen it more clearly in the moment and with truth in the moment? All of us have these situations. Because we are finite, we often can't see things as they really are in the moment. We need hindsight to see the truth. This is especially true as we've seen in the Psalms thus far in how we relate to the Lord and how we receive his interaction with our lives. We often mistake him as absent when he is actually the one, the only one, holding things together. Or maybe we often mistake something as his providential will when in actuality it was assuming our will was his. 
but hindsight gives us clarity. We can especially look back and see times when prayers were not answered as we desired. And while that may have caused disappointment in the moment, hindsight shows us that God's response, or maybe lack thereof, was actually for our ultimate good. I don't know about you, but I can remember many dating situations that I'm really thankful the Lord didn't answer prayers and cut those relationships off. I look back at my life and I think, Lord, why didn't you let me get into the NBA? But seeing many people who've gone that route and ended in destruction, I realize my predispositions to sin lead to a place where the Lord was actually gracious to me. We can look back and see things with clarity. Looking back at my life, I now see what those answers would have been, and I praise God that he did not act according to my will. I look back and I can see metaphorical bullets that I dodged. Maybe you can do the same. For the Lord knew me, he knew my predispositions to temptation and sin far better than I knew or know myself. And so praise be to God that he kept me safe, that he has delivered me from myself and from many other enemies. But you guys want to know the funny part? The part that frustrates me greatly about my own flesh is that even having this knowledge, after 44 years that the Lord has been my salvation throughout my life, I still question and doubt when new situations arise. God forgive me. Does that sound familiar to you as well? My hope for this psalm this morning is that as the Lord guides us through it by his spirit, that he would grow and build our faith in him so that we might trust him more and more with our lives every passing day. As I prepared for this psalm and I looked back through the life of David, the psalmist who writes this, and I look at his view of his life looking backwards, his hindsight, I start to understand a bit more what faith looks like. And I believe that the Lord is changing in me the ability to trust him more and more in the moment. And I pray that that's the same for all of us this morning, that we would grow in trust of the Lord, in faith of the Lord, knowing that he is doing exactly the right thing in the midst of our lives. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 18, what we're going to see is the hinds that hindsight brings praise for the rock of salvation. When we look back at our lives and we look back at them with hindsight, it will bring praise for the rock of salvation. Sometimes looking forward to the end will help us in the present because it definitely matters more how you finish than how you began. Now this psalm is a wonderful psalm of praise and a glorious kingship psalm that sings the royal praise of a glorious God. And if we simply read it with that view, we're gonna be blessed. We could read the thing out loud and be good to go for the rest of the week, for sure. But I also think that there's a deeper layer here. I think that the key to understanding this psalm is to see the vantage point of the author when it was written. It's not just simply praise as if it weren't attached to a timeline, it's praise at the end of a timeline. Let me explain a little bit more. We have to understand that this psalm was written towards the end of David's life. And so, it is David applying hindsight to see the work of the Lord in his life in a way that you can't see in many other psalms. If it were a movie, it would be called a retrospective. We know this from two different vantage points. The first is the header of the psalm tells us this. Notice what it says there in your Bible. Uh, right before verse one, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and then it goes into the psalm. 
So we know that this had to be at the end of his life because he was dealing with enemies multiple points in his life throughout his entire life. And in addition to this header of the psalm, we also have the narrative of David's life in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And 2nd Samuel 22 that we just read, uh, there's an almost word-for-word copy of this psalm. And so you can look at the introduction to that section that we just had read, and it starts the same way. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then almost word for word, it goes through. And in 2 Samuel, the very next chapter is the last written words of David. And then Samuel moves into recounting David's final sin against God and his death. And so from this narrative in First and Second Samuel, we know that this psalm is toward the end of David's life. It's a retrospective. And so reading this psalm from a hindsight perspective helps us interpret its meaning and deal with some of its tough passages. But secondly, not only looking at it in hindsight from David's story, David's narrative of his life, but also looking at it in hindsight from the perspective of God's covenantal, faithful love for his people. David understood this well because not only did Israel still exist within the blessing of the Mosaic Covenant, but David himself had been granted covenant promises by God as well. And the Davidic covenant stated that God would bring forth a Messiah, the ultimate king, to reign over Yahweh's people from David's lineage. And so David had this messianic expectation at the core of everything he did. He knew that the Lord would raise up a true king of Israel from his lineage. And so we need to see this psalm from a covenantal hindsight as well as David's hindsight. Not only will this help us to understand these difficult and confusing passages that we're going to see in the psalm, but it will also be a great model for us to realize we don't just exist in our own solitary narrative, as if God's covenant begins and ends with us individually or even with us as a church. Rather, David rightly speaks from an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness and his salvation to his covenant people across all time and space. Isn't it amazing that I, that we individually can doubt God's faithfulness when we have thousands of years of proof of his faithfulness? It shows how much lordship I take in my own life. Maybe you see the same. But both of these perspectives will be extremely helpful to us as we read and unpack this psalm. As we then leave this psalm, we can apply these truths to our own lives and walk with the Lord so that we might have faith in those moments where our flesh fails and we doubt the deliverance of God, the trustworthiness of God. So let's go ahead and dig in now and take a look at the first section where we'll see praise for Yahweh's salvation. Praise for Yahweh's salvation. Let's read together as a church, verses one through three. And if you're reading from the ESV, it'll be word for word in what I'm reading. If not, you might have some differences, but it's still the same meaning. Let's begin in verse one. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Look at this first phrase. It helps us set the covenantal context for this whole passage. David says, I love you, O Lord. Now the Hebrew word for love that David uses here is interesting. It's a primitive root word and it's used 46 times in the Old Testament. And out of those 46 times, 
all but one speak of it as having compassion or showing mercy. The only time that it is translated as merely the word love is here. And this is really important because every time we approach scripture, we have to remember that we automatically apply a filter of our own language, our own time, our own culture, and our own worldview. Reading scripture then requires us to do our best, because it's impossible to be totally rid of these filters, to do our best to lay aside our understanding and instead seek out the understanding of the author based on the context. Now, friends, this may sound overwhelming to you, and I say this often about context, and if it is overwhelming to you, so does David then mean that he loves God in a way where he has compassion and mercy on Yahweh, as it's used every other place in the Old Testament and Scripture? Probably not. What David is speaking of here is the love that comes as a result of God's covenant faithfulness. It's a response of faithfulness that is spurred on by God's covenant faithfulness. This entire psalm is centered in God's covenant love for his chosen people, his elect people. It is the backdrop, the frame, and the glass of the portrait of praise that David is about to paint for us. Love here, and generally in Jewish culture, doesn't mean something contingent upon positive feelings or emotions. It means choosing to exist in covenant faithfulness even when you don't feel like it. And that is why the hesed of God, the Hebrew word for steadfast love, that's used to portray God's character throughout the Old Testament, does not come and go based on God's feeling towards his people. It is an established, decided, and cultivated faithfulness and covenant promise between God and his people. It's the core of his character and the core of his story of salvation. And it should therefore be the core of his people and the core motivator of our praise. When we praise God, we praise him for his faithfulness to us, not because of our feelings in the moment, but because of his everlasting covenant faithfulness. And this is so important for you as new covenant believers. For friends, if you haven't already experienced this, maybe you're new in your Christianity, but in your walk with Christ, you will not always feel in love with God. And the unfortunate part is, is because of the misunderstanding of what love is in the church today, so many people just run and strive after a feeling, an experience where they think that they love God. But friends, that is not the love that we speak when we see, say, I love you, Lord. And it's also not the love we speak of when we say to one another, I love you, brother or sister. It's not dependent upon our feelings. It's dependent upon the faith of the faithful one. Now, David is praising God with his statement of love, not because the love originates out of his emotions, depending upon circumstances, but because God has shown immense, unfathomable mercy and compassion to David, and the only natural, logical response is to respond in faithful commitment to him. This is the framework through which we must view the rest of the psalm. God has been faithful to David, and David, in hindsight, is now seeing it with new, clearer eyes. What is central then to God's activity towards David and really all of God's people is that it is born out of this commitment to his people, regardless of how they act or respond to him. The Lord's faithfulness as their God and therefore his faithfulness to be their protector is dependent upon his character, not their activity towards him. And again, this should be great news to us for when we are faithless, the Bible says, 
He is what? Faithful. And this is a wonderful example for us as well in reading through this in the difference between prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of praise. You see, thanksgiving is gratitude for what the Lord has done, and this is somewhat implicit here, but more directly, it begins with a prayer of praise. Prayers of praise are blessing God for his nature and his character regardless of how it interacts with us. And praise is a blessing because it reminds us of God as we say it when our hearts often want to deny his character, when our hearts want to say that he is mean or that he isn't answering our prayers. And to display this praise, David unpacks seven metaphors for God's faithfulness as protector and redeemer listed right here in the text. First, he calls God his strength, or the word here could also be translated his help. And it is in admitting this weakness that we can find the strength that God will provide because we realize that we have nothing else on which we can depend. You can think of the Apostle Paul saying that when he is weak, that is when he is actually strong in Christ. The more we go to the Lord and admit our weakness, the more the Lord can be our strength. Second, David calls Yahweh his rock. The image of a rock is a firm foundation upon which to stand. But for David, as he fled to the wilderness, a rock was more. It was actually a shelter from the elements. In the desert, the leeward side of an upright rock is where an oasis would come from. It is a protection from the destructive nature of the sun and the wind. It becomes the barrier that protects that which is sitting behind it. And David realizes that God provided protection for him from the oppressors around him. When you're behind the rock, the sun and the wind does not go away. You can actually know that it's there. You can see it. You can feel it. But the rock protects you in the midst of it. In this way, thirdly, God also becomes a fortress and stronghold. He uses both of these words interchangeably. Fortress and stronghold for David. And this is the image of a great building with thick walls, a fort, if you will, that could keep the approaching enemy out. It is a place of protection and peace. And even though there are enemies wanting to attack, one can live their life within the walls of the fortress or stronghold in peace. And when it felt like the enemies of David were about to overwhelm him, God also acted as his deliverer. The word in the Hebrew here is one who provides a way of escape. You can think about the the many stories of people being lowered down out of windows in the Bible in a basket in order to escape their enemies. David knows that he should have been destroyed at times in his life, even by his own sin, and yet God provided a way of escape. And fifth, God is David's refuge. And this is similar to the idea of a fortress or stronghold, but the picture is one who is fleeing from danger. He knows that danger is there because it's on his heels, and he's able to enter into the gates of the fortress for protection from those which are hunting him. God provided this refuge for David many times in his life as he fled from those who sought his harm. God also acted as David's shield when his enemies attacked or the great enemy sent fiery darts his way. The attacks came, but God spared him from receiving a mortal wound. And lastly, God was David's horn of salvation. To exalt the horn of someone in these days was to praise their power. And so God supplied power to David, specifically in terms of saving him from his enemies. Now, all of these are beautiful metaphors, and they serve to show God's covenant faithfulness to David. But what is interesting is that you'll notice that David did not use metaphors 
that spoke of an absence of suffering and enemies. He actually used metaphors that showed that they were right there on his heels. That God was there in the midst of them all. All the suffering. All the attacks. And God proved faithful in holding David fast. In the midst of those situations, you can read the narrative, David was pretty worried. David wondered where God was. And you can even hear that in other Psalms. Where are you, Lord? We we read one just a few weeks ago. But here, looking in hindsight, David can look back and know that God was faithful. He was faithful to David in every way. He was faithful to be what we see next, which is David's deliverance. David's deliverance. If we think back to the life of David, this understanding of salvation in the midst of suffering makes sense. Apply the metaphors we've just seen to David's life and you begin to understand the praise from David that he's giving to God. Remember the story of David with me. Just go back to your Sunday school classes and the times where you've read through the narrative. This is the David that we first find is the weakest and smallest of his brothers. He's the one that everybody dismisses. He's cast aside by those who were his own family. And yet God selected him and chose him to be the greatest of Israel's kings. David was anointed by God only then to immediately find himself facing a giant, an experienced warrior that he was to face with nothing but stone. And another son tried to usurp the throne as David neared death. David was regularly at war and had many foreign enemies who desired his harm. But his greatest enemy was his own flesh as it played out in the story of the scandal with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. David became an adulterer and a murderer, and as a consequence of his actions, lost his first child with Bathsheba. And near the very end of his life, vanity and pride swelled as he tried to take a census of his kingdom, to which God had to bring a plague for David to repent. And yet, in the midst of all of this, David can look back and see the work of the Lord in the midst of all that was done to him and all that he did, because hindsight for David brought praise for the rock of salvation. And as David looked back on his life, he saw God act in miraculous ways on his behalf towards all those who were his enemies. And he did this in spite of David. Let's look and see as I read how David illustrates God's activity. Take a look, and I'm going to read through myself here, starting in verse 4, go through 14. It says, The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations. Also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. 
There's not much detail here in terms of what God actually did for him, but the imagery that David is employing here is very symbolic. As we look back at the narrative of his life, we don't necessarily see in First and Second Samuel this imagery used. So what does he mean by using all of this, by pointing us back to these pictures? Well, first in verses four and five, David speaks of himself as prey, caught in a trap. He uses the imagery of cords and a snare or an unsuspecting victim being caught in a current of a fast-moving river. In other words, the only outcome he could see was death. Death, destruction, Sheol, the place of the dead, all of these had their claws into David, and he felt it at those moments in his life. And yet, all David had to do was cry out to God, the God of Israel, the God who hears and sees and knows the plight of his people, the God that rescued his people out of Exodus. And God, sitting as king of the cosmos in his temple, hears the cry of his own, and therefore, he acted for David. Friends, you know what this feels like, don't you? where you look at your situation or your life or maybe the temptations that are pulling you away from the Lord and you see this same thing? Have you ever felt ensnared or trapped in the midst of life circumstances or amidst temptation to the point that you feel like destruction is all that awaits you? Maybe you feel cornered between two predators as if all that is left is destruction. Well, in those moments, like David, we can cry out to the God who hears and sees and knows, and he will hear and act on our behalf. And like David, it may not result in a clean, perfect, secure, safe outcome, but it will be a salvation amidst your enemies and amidst the adversary of God who wants to destroy you, so much so that to the point, at the end of your life, you can look back and you will see in those moments that you now wonder where God is, you will see his faithful hand moving throughout those situations. David then uses more imagery to describe God's activity. The language here is similar to earlier Old Testament stories that we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, as the Lord graciously called his people in mercy and then fought on their behalf. Let me give you a few examples here. Take a look at Exodus up on the screen. This is Exodus 19, 18 through 20, and then 20, verse 21. Notice the same imagery that's used to describe God acting in David's life. It says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The imagery here conveys a holy, separate, and powerful God of justice. This is the God who called Israel into covenant at Mount Sinai, who condescended to a people that did not deserve his grace, and yet he gave it to them. He pronounced to them the word of his truth and his law and brought them to himself in covenant. David is pointing to this same God as the God that acted throughout his life. There's another one that we see from Joshua. Joshua 10 and 11, it's as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven to them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
We just went through this as a church. This is a story of God acting on behalf of his people, fighting for his people. And this is what David is picturing, that this is the same covenantally faithful God who fights for his elect. He fights on behalf of his people. And just as with the song of Miriam that came after the defeat of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, David is writing a song here, using imagery of God's defeat of his enemies from throughout the Old Testament to describe his own personal salvation, his own personal deliverance. Yahweh is the God of Israel who promised refuge from their enemies. He is the God who fights on behalf of his covenant people, and he still fights for you. The arrows promised for his enemies come out of his covenantal promises to Israel that he would be their protector. And then the imagery from there in verses 15 through 20 is almost taken directly out of the story of the victory at the Red Sea. Let's read that now. Look at verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why wouldn't David simply recount the details from his own life in a narrative fashion? This is what God did for me. Here's my testimony. Well, for one, it wouldn't be as poetic. And two, David is speaking of God's protective nature as deliverer in a way that makes him greater than just what he could deliver for David. No, this protector, this deliverer, is not just so over David, but is promised to be so for all of God's people. What better way to declare this than to come up with his own song of deliverance that connects back to these awesome actions where God acted to secure his people from their enemies and place them in the land of their own. A set of promises from which David and his people are now reaping the fruit of victory at this very point in Psalm 18. And friends, this is another reason why it's so important to sit in the midst of the word of God. Our testimonies of God's deliverance do have great power, absolutely. But it is our story amidst the lineage of all God's people throughout time and space that declares the full weight of God's steadfast faithfulness to his people in covenant. Friends, if you're anything like me, you have a strong testimony. You can look back in your life and say, God acted here and acted here and acted here. But the question for you is, is that enough to get you through those times where you wonder why God isn't acting? But friends, this is why we need to look at the whole of church history, the whole of God's people. For when you look at that, you realize he is never faithless, ever and that history of thousands of years of God's faithfulness is bigger than even the most intense situation that you are going through. When we look back at that, we understand, like David did, this is not just about me. This is not just about this church. This is about all of God's people and God's faithfulness to them. Over and over again, as with David, God's people found themselves in situations which were far greater than themselves. And yet God proved faithful. The circumstances may have been awful. Enemies surrounded them. The pain of difficulty was felt. And yet God brought them through in ways that declared his great glory and his covenant faithfulness for his beloved people. Think of the Red Sea for a moment. Think about being an individual standing there, blocked by mountains on every side, the sea behind you, and you have people coming straight at you in military equipment ready to destroy you. 
Do you think those individual moms with their kids and those individual dads who had nothing to fight were like, oh, we got this, let's do this. Absolutely not. They in that moment thought we have nothing to look forward to but destruction, but death. And yet God provided a way for them. They still felt the pain and the suffering of the enemies around them. And yet God made a way and brought them deliverance. This is what David's referring to. Friends, remember that if God has called you, you are part of that beloved in which he delights. You're part of his people, his family, his kids. And so he is the God who hears you. He is the God who will act on your behalf. I will look back and see you as my deliverer. That's the truth of what David is getting across to us. And it's this principle that sits behind the next statements that David is going to make as we see the principle behind Yahweh's deliverance. The principle behind Yahweh's deliverance. Would you read with me as I read aloud, starting in verse 20? It says this, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, uh, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now, because we've just discussed his life story, we should automatically take issue with what David is saying. Really, David? God did this all because of your righteousness. Have you forgotten, David, about Bathsheba and Uriah? Maybe something has kicked in here where he just has a bad memory, right? Have you forgotten about the census you took at the end of your life that incited a plague and people died because of it? Have you forgotten about the lack of leadership in your home, David? Have you forgotten about your multiple wives and the fact that you were a murderer? So we can look at this, and if you're anything like me, even as you read through it, you kind of thought, say what now? Now friends, if we're honest with ourselves, this text poses some problems for us. We know that David was not one with clean hands. In fact, God denied him the ability to build the temple because he says you have blood on your hands. We know that he did not holistically keep the way of the law of the Lord. So then what do we do with this? Do we cast it aside? Do we say it wasn't David, even though it's noted to be his authorship twice? Do we superimpose a view of works righteousness and say that maybe David believed that by the end of his life, his good outweighed his bad in terms of his works? I don't think any of these attempts are honest with the text. So what do we do with it? Well, all we have to do is look at some of his other Psalms. Psalm 51 details his sin and need for repentance amidst the Bathsheba situation. Or take, for example, this simple statement in Psalm 69.5, also written of David, by David. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. This and many other Psalms show that David was well aware of his faults. 
So how do we read this then? Well, first, we must read it from this place of hindsight we've been talking about, hindsight of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And then, as we've learned so far, we have to read it in the context of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 applies to the rest of the Psalms in a certain sense. And what we learned in Psalm 1 is that there is a way of the righteous and a way of the wicked. But all of humanity, because of original sin and the actions of our first parents, Adam and Eve, are innately walking in the way of the wicked, including David. Innately, David was in the way of the wicked. And only the Lord, only the God of Israel and his steadfast love, mercy, and grace can remove us from this path and place us on the way of righteousness. He performs this by entering into covenant with us. Remember that a covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. God's covenant promise to us is to hold us steadfast and to be faithful in the way of righteousness. Even though we will have problems and faults in the midst of that covenant because we are still bound in these fleshly bodies. Friends, it's very similar relationship when we struggled and made stupid, foolish mistakes because everybody does. And within the bounds of that covenant grace, we're able to grow. We're able to grow into the image of God. And this is what this covenant faithfulness means. God calls us into covenant with himself. He knows that we are but dust, but flesh, and yet he gives us room to repent, room to be sanctified. And we see markers of this understanding throughout this section. Look, for example, at verse 21. He says, for I have kept kept the ways of the Lord. And we think, really? (laughs) The word ways in the Hebrew there is derek. It's the same word used in Psalm 1 for the way, the path of the righteous, or the way or path of the wicked. He's saying, I have been on the path of the righteous. And we say, well, you're you're saying because of yourself, because of your righteousness. But all we have to do is keep reading. To walk in the ways of the Lord is not to be perfect. If it were, no one could ever be saved. Rather, it is to acknowledge that his ways are perfect and good. And to acknowledge our guilt and sin before God because we do not perfectly walk in them. Friends, the biggest sin that happened at the fall, was saying, God doesn't know good from evil, I do. So when we acknowledge the fact that he does know, his ways are perfect, his ways are better, and we submit to them saying, we cannot perfectly keep them. This is actually repentance. This is actually what grace calls for. And to walk in repentance and acknowledge your need for the Lord and his righteousness is exactly what the Lord calls us to do. Not to be perfect, for there is only one who is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. And David knew this. David knew this because if you continue reading, the rest of the psalm gives context to these statements he just made. Look, for example, at verse 27. For you save a humble people. A people who say, we are weak, but you are strong. Now, how could David say this was The truth, given what he just claimed in verses 20 through 24, isn't that actually the definition of haughtiness? My righteousness, my clean hands? Well, all we have to do is just keep reading. He knew that the righteousness he had in his life was by the hand of the Lord only. Without the Lord, he would have no understanding of the truth. Look at verse 28. For it is you, Lord, who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. 
He knew that without the Lord, he would have no strength. Look at verse 29. For by you, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. It was only in finding refuge under the truth of God's word and in the truth of God's way that David could find righteousness. And so the principle that we find here is that of what many theologians later, especially the reformers, would call imputed righteousness. Everybody say it with me. Imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that is foreign to us. It's a righteousness that is not our own. It is alien to us, but it is given to us, placed upon us by God's covenantal grace. By God's grace, he calls us into covenant relationship with him, and he sets us on a path of righteousness. By his invitation, we are given a righteousness that is not our own because he counts us among his righteous people. And central to this righteousness is the necessity of a sacrificial system that can cleanse us of our sins and make us truly righteous before God. For David, that was the ceremonial system of the Old Testament, for he did not know the name of the Messiah that would come. And through that system, he was able to claim that he was cleansed of his sins and stood righteous before God because God had called him and provided for him and the rest of Israel a means of repentance and purification that would declare that he was in covenant that foreshadowed the perfect sacrifice that was given once for all in Jesus Christ, which initiated the new covenant in which you and I now stand. There is no part of it that is actually our own doing, and yet, by God's grace, we can claim it as our own, and that's what David does here. David sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth because he's saying, I couldn't have done any of this because you, the Lord, did it. But then he's claiming it as his own. Because like Abraham, it's counted to him as righteousness. This is what is called imputed righteousness. It is a righteousness that is alien to us, yet placed upon us by the grace of God. It is a righteousness in which we stand, not because of our own sacrifices or acts of righteousness, but because of Christ's. And so at the end of this life, At the end of his life, David could look back and say, I was, from God's eyes, I am pure, clean, and righteous. He can say and claim, I did not wickedly depart from the way of the Lord, because at the end point of his life, he is still walking in covenant relationship with the Lord, dependent upon God's grace. Matters far more how you finish than how you begin. Friends, this same principle plays out in your life and mine. We are not saved by our own righteousness, but we are saved by God's work. He gives us the truth. He lights our way, lightens our darkness, gives us strength. His way is perfect. His way proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Our righteousness is from him, and yet we can claim it as our own. And this same principle played out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Even with the knowledge of his Savior, knowing that Jesus is the sacrifice that brought forgiveness, that brought purity, that brought righteousness. In our second reading, we heard from what was most likely his latest written words prior to his death that were canonized. And in them, we see him claim righteousness, but then also give glory to God that it was all his work. He does the exact same thing David does. 
Take a look with me again, 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Notice how much he's claiming. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's talking about awards. Don't you usually get those for what you do? Right? But yet, what does he say just a few verses later? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. We could go on about Paul's life. Paul was a murderer. Paul was one who had tons of blood on his hands. Paul was one who in the moment, there were many moments where he was anxious where he was about to drown, where he was about to get beaten, where he was thrown out of town. Over and over again, it seemed like his enemies were overwhelming him. And yet, these are the words that he was able to speak because hindsight brings praise for the rock of our salvation. The work of God played out in his life as one of his covenant people. Friends, did David and Paul have horrific sin in their lives? Absolutely. But what we also see in their life stories was a constant reliance upon the grace and mercy of God in the midst of those situations. Even when they knowingly chose sin and sinned against God, their response of repentance was immediate. We see in their lives humble submission to authority, even authority trying to kill them. In David's story, we see immediate repentance when Nathan calls him to account for his adultery with Bathsheba. We see mercy and grace given by David to Mephibosheth as he acts out the same grace he has been given. We see faithfulness to his promises to Jonathan. We see a near constant reliance upon the Lord and submission to his will. In all these ways, we see a man who, while grossly imperfect, also trusted in and walked in the grace and the truth of the Lord and was empowered to act. And this should be hope for every one of us that we can run the race with endurance. And like David, we will have moments in this life where we feel the bondage of death, the snare of the enemy, or even broken by sins and faults that only God can see. And in those moments, like David, we will probably cry out for help and forgiveness, wondering if it will come. But the life of a Christian is held in the hands of the Lord. And so we will, like David, like Paul, look back at some point in our lives and realize that God has been faithful to hold us fast. And we too will be able to claim a righteousness that is not ours and yet is our own because God has made it so through the sacrificial offering of his son that cleanses us from our sin and makes us right before God. This becomes even more clear in the next section as we see David speak again of his deliverance. He revisits it, his deliverance revisited. We see David's reliance here upon the Lord as the true source of his righteousness. This next section gives us the foundation from which David can claim what he did back in verses 20 through 24. All that he just claimed as his own was actually all the Lord. Let's read this section together starting in verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. 
He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. This is the perplexing truth of being part of God's true covenant people. We walk in righteousness, but who is it that makes us righteous? It is God. We show mercy and grace at times, but only in so much as we know the mercy and grace of God. You see, in verse 23, David can claim that he was blameless. Look at it there. He says, I was blameless before him. But then in verse 32, what does he say? The Lord made my way blameless. And it is this tension in which we should all walk, confident of the righteous God, the righteousness that God has given us, yet humble in our realization that it is all God's doing. It is a righteousness given to us, not originating in and out of ourselves. In verses 20 through 24, it is David who is righteous. But in 30 through 35, it was the Lord who paved the way and made it possible. In verses 7 through 15, it was the Lord who brought salvation and deliverance. But now in verses 37 through 42, it is David that defeated his enemies. Let's look at that. Starting in verse uh, 36, actually. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets." Why did God not answer his enemies and yet answered him? Because of covenant faithfulness. Because God had chosen David and placed his grace upon him and given him his righteousness. It is David here that defeats his enemies. But then again in 43 through 45, who is it that does the work? Well, it's the Lord who conquered. Look at 43 through 45. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. It was God who did the conquering, and yet David was the one who was victorious over his enemies. When we are in covenant with the Lord, he works through us, and we work on his behalf. And here's David's point. We will go through this life with such blindness as to what the Lord is doing. At some points, we will cry out wondering where he is. At others, we will be assured of his strength through us and we will almost wonder as if maybe I've been made righteous. But at the last, we will all look back with hindsight, which will bring praise for the rock of our salvation. For we will realize that all the while, it was God and not us that brought forth all that is good in our lives. And yet, an understanding of that grace means we will also recognize that he will award us as if we are righteous, as if we had been the ones doing it. This is how massive his grace is. Understanding this principle now, that we are safe in God's gracious covenantal love, and understanding that we too will stand where David and Paul stood should give us faith. Understanding that this day will come for each of us will give us faith in those moments where we cannot see the path before us. 
David realizes this at the end of his life, and so he finishes with what I hope each one of us will have on our lips at the end of our time on this earth. He finishes with a conclusion of praise. Friends, we don't have to have faith in ourselves. We simply have to have faith that the Lord is the one doing the work. And that will bring us through to this place of a conclusion of praise. Let's read verses 46 through 50. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. You know what? Let's read this together, shall we? All of us together. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. For David, he can look back on his life and see the endurance that was given to him by the Lord, a life that experienced as many ups and downs as that of David could have been brought down completely at any time. So David realizes that it was the Lord that held him fast. It was the Lord that was his rock and refuge. The place where, whether it be the sin of others against him or the sin that he gave way to, God would rescue him, deliver him, and protect him. David could see that his life was nothing but a testament of the grace of the Lord. Now, many theologians read this section and believe that David was speaking prophetically the words of the coming Messiah. Verse 50 is the clincher, as only Christ is the ultimate king and anointed of God. He's the only one who could have been made the head of the nations in verse 43, that drew people he had not known, and as soon as they heard of him, they obeyed him. These statements here very much could be in a messianic perspective. Only Christ is the king and anointed of God. He is the fulfillment of the offspring of David and the one who will sit on the throne of his people as ruler. In his death and resurrection, God the Father gave vengeance over the kingdom of darkness and rescued him from all his enemies. In his enthronement, God the Father subdued all nations under him. And because of this, all who are Christ's covenant people will praise him among the nations and sing to his name. We will declare that salvation is his and his alone. For in Christ alone can redemption and salvation be found for those who, like David, like you and me, sin greatly against the Lord and yet have found mercy and grace and salvation. Perhaps the greatest testimony to David's understanding of God's grace is found in verse 35. Your gentleness made me great. The word gentleness in Hebrew, it means not a tone like we talk about today. It means condescension. That God became meek and humble and condescended to a people. He was not removed of his righteous judgment or his position of king of the cosmos, but he came to us meek and humble as a servant. It was in God condescending to humanity that Israel was chosen and given grace and given the oracles of his word. It was in God condescending to David that his line was chosen to be the messianic line. It was in God condescending to mankind, excuse me, 
in the form of Christ that our sin and David's could be forgiven, conquered, so that we could rise with Christ in glory. By Christ's gentleness, the very gentleness of God the Father, by his meekness at the cross, you and I have been made great. In Christ's condescending to you this morning through the ministry of this word, this errant ministry that comes from a very human mouth, the great God and ruler of all the cosmos is inviting you to enter into covenant with him. If you are one who knows that you have sinned greatly against the God that formed you, and your conscience bears witness to this fact, you can find the same salvation that David did. Simply repent, turn from your sin, and embrace God, the God who is calling you to that repentance, and ask him to be your strength, your rock, your fortress, and your deliverer. If you want to know more about this idea of repenting and turning to the Lord to seek his forgiveness, any of the elders who will stand up here later at the end of service would be happy to pray with you and talk with you, myself included. For those of us who are already in the midst of a new covenant relationship with Christ, I pray that this psalm will give us encouragement and strength no matter what we are facing today and in the future. Christ is the fortress and shield that you can rely upon. He is the rock that will protect you from the burning heat and the overpowering wind. Like David, you will have to go through the struggle and the suffering, but also like David, you will be able to emerge on the other side knowing the God that held you fast. And so friends, simply endure in the faith that God will give you strength, even though you can't understand it right now. Cling to him, turn to him quickly in repentance when you find yourself in sin and rely upon his grace and mercy and covenant faithfulness to get you through. His gentleness shown forth in Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf has made you great. Hold fast to that truth. You may not see it now, but if you are his, you will see it at the end, like David, like Paul. And you will praise God as David has done here. And then you and I will also see the hindsight that brings praise for the rock of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, not only should this give us faith to endure, but it should show us the need to band together within the new covenant that unites us in Christ to remind one another of the fact when we find ourselves in the midst of these struggles, it is very much impossible for us to manifest enough strength in ourselves to get through. And this, that is why we look to the covenant community around us that reminds us of the truth of God, the history of his covenant faithfulness, and even the history of covenant faithfulness in our own life. And so let's remind each other often that while we may not see it now, hindsight one day will bring praise for the rock of salvation. This week, I want to encourage you to practice the application of this text. Spend time with your roommates or your spouse or your kids or a good friend and follow what David shows us here. Look back with hindsight on where the Lord has shown himself great in your midst. Not just the places of blessing, but the places where you thought you were in the snare of the enemy and the Lord brought you deliverance. Not just the places where you felt the free-flowing righteousness of God, but the places where your flesh wanted one thing, but by God's grace, he was your strength and walked you in righteousness instead. You too will see him as a rock of salvation, a shield, a fortress, and a stronghold and a refuge. For life humbles us so that we might go before the Lord and recognize that while we have a sure salvation, it was the Lord who made it so. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful this morning for your grace. We are thankful 
that not by our own actions or merit did you save us, but by your own grace, because, Lord, we know that we have not merited anything but death and hell. And so we praise you that you, out of your loving kindness, decided to call us to yourself. And we pray for more still, Lord, that you would call them, maybe even people sitting here amongst us or those that we are in uh, living life with outside of these doors. We pray, Lord, that you would call them to yourself so that they might know your grace as well. And Lord, we pray that we would be the medium by which, by which you testify of that grace, that we would be able to go out into the world and know that the righteousness we have in our lives is from you and yet claim it as our own and walk in the truth that your grace is so powerful that you have made us people who are complete sinners, completely impure. You have made us righteous and pure in your eyes. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in that identity and truth, full well-knowing that it is you who empowers us to do so. Lord, help that be a testimony to the people around us. This world needs you and needs to know your grace so badly. And so we pray, God, that you would make us a people that stand firm in the gospel of grace that we've heard here this morning and the gospel of grace that David, without even knowing the name of the Messiah, proclaimed and declared that you are a God who makes us strong, who gives us righteousness, and who calls us in your ways. We give you all the praise this morning, and we pray that as we declare your grace through the action of communion now, that you would be glorified and that we would be made more and more into your image and understand the necessity of clinging to you in every part of our life. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In our gathering together, we remember and proclaim that Christ was crucified as our Savior and resurrected as our Lord and King. We reaffirm our covenant commitment to him and his church that we each initiated on the day of our baptism. His word says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So let's now take a moment of silence to examine ourselves, recognize the body of Christ, his church that surrounds us, and see if we are walking in covenant faithfulness and unity with Christ and his people. If not, now is the time to confess and determine to repent. undealt with sin or open conflict within the body that you are unwilling to reconcile, we recommend that you not participate in the taking of communion until that concern is resolved. The Lord's Supper is a meal for sinners who have heard the gospel, responded in repentance, gone public with their faith in Jesus through baptism, and joined themselves to a local body of believers. So if you are a member of this church or you are a baptized believer visiting us from another church that preaches the same gospel you heard here this morning, we invite you to join us around the table in display of our spiritual unity in Christ within the greater church universal. If this does not describe you or for any other reason you think it would be inappropriate to participate, we invite you to simply watch and observe. We also want to invite you to talk with one of the pastors of the church after the service about being baptized and joining this church family. And so starting with the front rows, you can come forward to the tables at either side of the stage and take of the bread and cup and go back to your seat and we will partake of it together. And as we go, Let's sing praise to the Lord for his grace.
This bread that we hold in our hands symbolizes the body of the crucified Christ. The cup symbolizes his blood that was provided as a purifying sacrifice that atones for our sin. As we partake of it together as his body in common unity, we proclaim our mutual faith in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, and that he will return as judge and king. Would you raise the bread up with me now? Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat in thanksgiving and remembrance together. Would you lift the cup with me? In the same way, the Lord took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink in thanksgiving and remembrance together. Let's pray. God, you are faithful in your promises to your people, and so we give you thanks. Our hope is in you and in your Son, through whom you have brought redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Along with your righteousness and freedom, I steadfastly.
I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to you. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ
pray together. We thank you for being our deliverer. You, Lord, are mighty to save. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What joy should fill our hearts when we meditate on the salvation and deliverance you, Lord, have accomplished. To you, Lord, be all glory, honor, and praise. It is in you and you alone that this world was created, and you continue to sustain it. Your great power is clearly seen all around us. From the power of the rushing rivers, the ocean-shifting tides, or the strength seen and felt through a storm, we see your majesty, Lord. Thank you for the example King David is of praising you and thanking you even in the hard and scary times. He realized his deliverance was from you and you alone. How easy it could have been for him to praise his own physical strength in battle or his mental smarts when dealing with his enemies, but David realized all those things are gifts from you and you alone were his deliverer. While his life is a story of ups and downs, he eventually saw your faithfulness in him and faithfulness to him. Humble us, Lord, and help us to see our need to be totally reliant upon you, as David eventually realized his total need for you as well. As we leave here this morning and face the world outside these walls, may we daily be in your word, realizing our total reliance upon you and your grace. We thank you for the deliverance you have given us and ask that by the Holy Spirit we would remember that freedom and security in times this week where we are tempted to forget. Help our eyes to be focused upon you and upon serving and loving others this week, Lord, we ask. In your name, amen. All right, we got a uh, congregational meeting coming up this Saturday for those of you that are members and those of you that want to check it out. Um, It's at 9.30. May the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go this week. We love you, and hopefully we'll see you back here, Lord willing, next week. God bless you. Tell me who's that right John the Revelator Who's that right John the Revelator Who's that right John the Revelator Wrote the book of the seven seals No, God walked out Because he wasn't making